0: All right. While we're receiving the offering, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, we are going to be in Psalm chapter 30 this morning. If you um, didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay, but you are going to need one. Uh, we're going to be walking through the whole chapter this morning, uh, so you can you can bust out your phone or your iPad, whatever you use to get in Scripture. If you forgot all of that, like you just kind of rolled out of bed and barely made it here, that's okay too. Um, there's a Bible underneath the seat that you're sitting in, uh, so you can reach down and grab that Bible and pull that out, a white Bible. We're in Psalm thirty. It's really easy to find. Um, If you're new to the Bible, you just let it fall open, straight to the middle. You're going to hit the Book of Psalms and just look for chapter thirty, right? If you can, if you can count, you can find it. I promise. Just let it fall open. You'll hit the Book of Psalms and then. Chapter 30 is where we're going to be this morning. We've been in this series called The Anatomy of the Soul. The Anatomy of the Soul, it's based on a a quote by John Calvin who said, The Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the human soul. The Psalms are an anatomy of the human soul. And what he meant by that was that um, everything that you find in the the Psalms, what we we find is, is, is unpacking of emotions, our greatest longings, our greatest fears, our greatest joys, our greatest delights, it's, it's all there, how our soul was designed um, to engage God and how God engages our souls. It's, it's all unpacked right there in, in the Psalms. Um, and so we've been walking through the Psalms all summer long, and this is actually our last Sunday in this series. Next, next Sunday, we're beginning a new series uh, in, in the park. It's going to be a, a lot of fun, but this is kind of the last one, and we've talked about all kinds of ideas. Um, the deliverer of the soul, the longing of the soul, the joy of the soul. Um, and this morning, as we kind of unpack Psalm 30, we're going to kind of re, relive and re-experience a lot of those different things. Um, this morning, we're going to dive into some kind of deep truth. Um, and, and the hope, is, the hope is, is that we would leave this place a little bit different than when we walked in, a little bit more uh, understanding who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. And so let's dive in. Psalm 30. Psalm 30 was written... By King David. Most of the Psalms were written by King David, and this one was written by King David. Uh, Psalm 30 was written by David for the dedication of the Jewish temple, the Israelite temple, the the Israelite temple to their God. Now, if you know history, this is a little weird because um, the temple didn't exist yet, okay? Um, In David's lifetime, David didn't build the temple. His son Solomon would go on to build the temple in Israel, um, in Jerusalem, after David's death. Um, But David was so kind of consumed with this idea and longed to have this done and have this complete um, that he wrote about it. And so this psalm was actually written for the dedication of the temple long before it was ever built. We're going to dive into it. And what I want us to spend, the time, or spend our time on this morning um, is you'll see a command that da- David's going to say a few things that, that is true of his relationship with God and some of the things that God's done through him. But he's going to give a command to the people of Israel that I believe is true for you and I as well. And we're going to unpack that this morning. So let's dive in. Verse 1. Here we go. Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me, O Lord, my God. I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up from up my soul from Sheol, and and restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Now here comes the command. Ready, verse four. He says this to the people of Israel. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints and give thanks to his holy name. There it is, two two parts, two pieces, right? He says, first, sing praises to the Lord, right? If If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are loved by God, sing praises to the Lord and give thanks to his holy name. So two pieces, right? Sing praises Give thanks, sing praises, give thanks. Now, why? Why do we sing praises? We did that this morning, right? We sing praises, we sing what is true of him, um, and we give thanks to him, right? Why do we do that? Now, if I were to ask you that question kind of before, as you were walking in this morning, um, some of the answers would have been, oh, well, we do that because um, God, is, God is good to us, right? He's, he's done good things in our lives. Uh, God is big and he's vast. He's awesome. He's, he's majestic. And so he's worthy of our singing. He's worthy of our praises. He's worthy of our thanks because he's done good things. David actually gives Israel a different reason. He did, gives Israel a different reason why. He says this in verse 5. For, because, right? For, his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning, right? Why? Well, why do we sing praises to God? Why do we give thanks to his holy name? Why why do we do that? Because his anger is temporary. It's short. It's small. His favor is lifelong. Our sorrow, our tears might tarry for a night. There might be a season of pain, a season of sorrow, but joy is coming you see, what we tend to do, what, what the human soul tends to do, you and I, we, we do this. We take what is big and what is vast, what is weighty, what is massive, what is lifelong, what is eternal, okay? Uh, we, we take what is huge and, and worthy uh, of, of great amounts of, of praise and thanksgiving and joy and gladness, and we shrink it. We make it small and forgettable, maybe, maybe even forgotten, and we take what is small and what is what is tiny and we enlarge it we make it we make it vast and we make it uh, big and we make it worrisome and huge. We do this all the time constantly we are doing this right whether you realize it or not you are doing it right You turn on the news and you're doing it right We take the stories, the news stories that are small and insignificant, right um, Kim Kardashian is, has a surrogate kid or something like that's going on. I don't know I couldn't figure it out. it's confusing maybe you know I don't know right? That's big news. Why? I have no idea. But it's big news. It's, it's like everywhere right now. I don't care about it, but it's it's huge, right? We we expand it, we make it big, we make it massive, and then we take, we take stories that are huge and important and, and, and should be talked about, and we should be discussing, and they're just not even there. They're not talked about. You don't even you don't even know about them because they're not they're not in the news. They're not front and center, right? We we, we need to take a small little tweet um, and make it huge news and take huge news and make it small. We do this constantly, right? How many of you um, have raised, are raising, or will raise a teenage girl? A lot of you. Uh, For those of you who have already gone through it, you might want to close your ears because I'm going to bring back something like PTSD. You're not going to, it's going to be okay. Um, he, here's, here's, here's my point, right? So, so for the teenage girl who has been for lifelong Lifelong, right? Her entire life, 16, 17 years, lifelong. She has been loved and cared for again and again. Her parents have given her truly everything. I mean, in, in the hardest moments of her life, they have been there for her. They have loved her. Uh, her closet is full of uh, just wonderful, beautiful clothes. Um, she, she has a car that you can drive around. It's amazing. Her, her dad loves her, her mom loves her. She has been nurtured and cared for all the way, all the way from, from birth until now, and it's time for prom, and, she, and she, so her parents give her, say, you can buy any dress you want, and then she gets mom's credit card, she goes to the store, she buys that dress, and prom night comes, she comes downstairs, dad says, where's the rest of it, <laughs> like, is that, is that it, like, that's, aren't you supposed to put something else on, because... <laughs> All right. So, no, this is it. This is this is the beautiful dress that you let me buy, and and mom says, get upstairs right now. Put on last year's dress. That's the one you're wearing. Like you're not wearing. You're not wearing that. And in that moment, that teenage girl takes what is what is small and what is temporary, what is what is insignificant, and and expands it and, and magnifies it. And suddenly, mom and dad hate me, and my life is literally ruined. I will never be the same. I will never get married. I'll never. There's no. There is. No it's over for me in what is massive her parents love for her her parents delight in her every ounce of care and every 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 time that she's fallen and they've picked her up again and again and again it's gone in that moment it's gone it's forgotten my parents hate me and I hate them we're never going to speak again I'm never leaving my room I don't care. I'll starve, right? This is, this is how that goes down, okay? All right, you can unplug your ears. And, and what, what, David is, what David is saying is that we, you and I, we do the same thing with God. Again and again and again and again. God's love for us is constant and steadfast. It's always there. It's always there. His favor towards us is always good. It's always right. But then in the moment of suffering, the moment when when things begin to creep in and the moment when when, when we begin to feel a little discomfort or a little pain or maybe even great discomfort, great pain, suddenly the, the, the steadfastness, the love, the mercy, the grace of God is quickly forgotten. And we say, where are you? Why? How could you? How could you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? What's wrong with you? You and I, we do this all the time. And the crazy piece of this, the crazy bit of this is that for you and I, the reality is everything in the Bible that talks about me tells me that I don't deserve any of the love and I don't deserve any of the mercy and I don't deserve any of the grace. Everything in the Bible about me tells me that I'm not actually not that good. Paul talks about this idea a lot in Romans. In Romans, um, in, in Romans uh, in, in Romans uh, 3, Paul talks about this idea sometimes. In Romans 3.10, uh, Paul says, There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. No one is good. Not, not one. Uh, in Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Ephesians 2, he says, um, We were once dead in our transgressions in sin in which we once walked. The, 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 the penalty for sin is death. There is no one who is good. There is no one who is righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah 64 that even our most righteous acts... Right, the day when you nailed it. Right, your kid comes to you with this, this massive problem, and it's like this parenting moment, and you just nail it. You spin it around, and all of a sudden, Jesus is the hero, and you've you've created it. And they're like, "Oh, I love Jesus more because of what Dad said." Even in that moment, like your your best day, your most righteous acts are as filthy rags before the God of the universe. There's no one who's worthy of His love. There's no one who's earned His forgiveness. There's no one who's who should receive mercy. You see, the mercy and the love and the forgiveness should be far smaller than the anger and the tears. In fact, they shouldn't exist. It should only be angers and tears. And so the question then is, well, why? Why why are there moments of joy? Why, Why are there moments of delight? Why do you experience contentment at all? Well, there's two things. There's, there's, on one hand, there's what we tell ourselves to be true, and then there's what is truth, right? And, and David unpacks this in the next lines. This is what he says. He says in verse 6, as for me, as for me, I said in my prosperity, right? When times were good, when everything was great for me, I shall never be moved, now, verse 7, he's going to tell you what's true. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Here's what he just said. He said, for me, when everything was going good in my kingdom, when we were, when we were winning the battles, when everything was right, um, when, our, when our people were being uh, obedient, and everything was in line, and there was tons of prosperity in the land, and, and the kingdom was good, right, I said to myself... I've done it, I've accomplished it, I've built it, and I am awesome, right? I'm King David, and and that's just, I'm just good, right? But then, but then the Lord turned his face from me. He removed his gaze, and I realized in that moment a deep theological truth. I was never in control. It was never me. I was never the one. You see, calm seas make sloppy sailors. We can be easily lulled into believing that we in some way should form, are awesome at living our lives. That we can sail this boat wherever we want to sail it and we're just that good. But then all it takes is the waves to rise just a little bit too high, the wind to blow a little bit too hard, and the next thing we realize is that we were never in control in the first place. We were never the ones in control And even in that moment, even in that moment, it's a moment of mercy. God says, I was the one who was in control, and I'm going to release my grasp from the helm. I'm going to turn my face from your life, and I'm going to remind you that you need me. I know that you're like slapping my hand away, and you're like, I got this. Um, Okay, I'm going to let you take it for a moment, and we'll see how that goes. I'm pretty sure you need me. I'm pretty sure you want my hand on the helm. I'm pretty sure you want me in your life. I'm pretty sure that you need me close to you. And David says, I realize this deep theological truth that every moment of my life, every moment that I lived, every single moment where there was any form of contentment at all was a moment of mercy and a moment of grace. And that's every moment of our life. Every every moment of our life where there is any any form of goodness, every moment of life where there's any form of contentment where we say, okay, I know it's bad, but it's gonna be okay. That little it's gonna be okay is mercy. It's grace. It's something that we do not deserve. It's, it's something that we, that, we sh- that we should not have, but there it is. In the darkest hours, if there's any hope at all, if there's, any, if there's any comfort at all, if there's someone in your life who puts their arm around you, it's mercy and it's grace. It's God, not you. This is what David is realizing. That That was God caring for me, not my might, but his. This is what he's realizing and this is, this is a hard truth for, for us to really wrap our minds around. People, people go their whole lives never realizing the weight of this. But when David realizes that every moment of life that he has experienced any goodness, which is every moment, is a moment of grace and mercy, he responds to that. And he responds um, in, in two ways. The first, he begs for more which is normal and natural and right. And then he gives praise and thanks. He begs for more. Let's see how he does this. In verse 8, he says this. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to you, Lord, I plead for mercy. I realize that every moment of my life where there's been breath in my lungs and blood beating through my heart has been a moment of mercy. You've given that to me. You've sustained me in that. Um, And so, what I realize is if if the next moment is going to be good for me at all, if there's going to be breath in my lungs and and blood in my veins, I I need mercy. I I, I need mercy in order to experience that moment. And so, please give me one more. Please, Please give me one more. And then he goes on to make a deal with God, which. Never a good idea, but it's okay. Um, here's what he says, verse 9. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? What, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Here, here's what he's saying. He says, man, when, what, will it, what will it gain you if the next moment is not a moment of mercy for me, right? Will the dust praise you? The answer to the question is yes, it will. Even the dust will declare his glory. But David says, I will do more. If you give me one more moment of mercy, that moment will be a moment of praise. I don't care what's going on. I don't care if the kingdom is crumbling around me. If there is breath in my lungs, it will be a moment of praise. Because I realize this deep theological truth that every moment of my life, where there is anything good at all, it is grace and mercy. It is of God. It is not of me. His hand is on the helm. It is not mine. Some of you say, Josh, no, like you don't understand. I've, su- I've suffered too much for it to be mercy. So some of you have suffered a lot. You've gone through a lot of things. You've, you've lived through things that uh, you can't even talk about. And it's true, it's hard. But the scripture is no less true. I had a friend in Chicago. His name was Adam, and Adam was a young kid. He was um, in college, and uh, I was—I was a pastor at the time. And Adam—Adam Adam suffered his whole life. He had cystic fibrosis. He couldn't couldn't breathe right, so he couldn't—he couldn't. He couldn't uh, play sports like other kids played. He couldn't do things that other kids did. He, he struggled with everything. And in fact, even, even one time when Adam and I were hanging out, Adam started coughing up blood. I had to take him to the ER. And, and, and long story short, over the course of his life, as, as we hung out and became friends, Adam, Adam had to go through all kinds of different treatments. He was constantly at the hospital, constantly at the hospital, constantly, constantly. I'd have to call his parents. His parents would come down from Wisconsin to help him out and take care of him. Um, ultimately, he had to have a have his lungs replaced and and Adam knew his whole life he knew man I'll never grow old I'll never I'll never have kids I'll never get married that's just not for me but Adam loved Jesus and so for Adam Adam always said I don't know why I don't know why God has given this to me I don't I don't know why Um, this is this is my story but it's a story of praise because even though there's, there's less breath in my lungs than there is in your lungs, the reality is there's breath, in, there's breath in my lungs, and God has given me that breath. And so I'll praise him for that breath. And Adam declared this everywhere he went. He told his story on college campuses all throughout Chicago, and we talked about it all the time. And he, he always shared, man, I, God has given me this life. He's given me this moment, the moment that I'm living in right now, whether, whether I'm coughing up blood or I'm going to the ER, it's a moment that he's given me. And so I will praise him in that moment. And Adam did die young. But his moment, his little brief human moment, goes on. I still talk about it. I still think about it. Even in my hard times when, when things are pressing in, I realize, man, it's a moment of praise. It's a, it's a moment to be thankful. It's a moment to be glad. And that's what David does. David goes on to praise God. He says, he says listen, if you give me a moment, if you give me one more moment, it will be a moment of praise. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. I was sad when I thought, oh, I, it's me. It's me in this trouble, and it's all bad. And it's all bad. But then I realized it's not all bad. There's grace here, and there's mercy here. And so this truth has turned for me my mourning into dancing. Yeah, I still suffer, but I dance in my suffering. You've loosened my sackcloth, the garment of mourning, and clothed me in gladness. You notice that he didn't say, you took it off it's still there. I'm still wearing it. Not everything's good. Not everything's peachy. But I realize even though I'm in mourning, even though I'm in sackcloth, it's loosened because there's grace here and there's mercy here. You've clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever, forever. Every moment that there is breath in my lungs, it will be a moment of praise because it is a moment of grace. And the crazy thing is that Jesus, Jesus wades into all of our moments. You see, the gospel of Jesus affects every moment of your life. The moments of joy, the moments of pain, the moments of sorrow, the moments of gladness. Every moment is affected by the gospel because you see Jesus steps into time. He gives his life. He goes to the cross. God himself, God himself bleeds for you. And his blood purchases our souls. He's the deliverer of the human soul. His blood covers us. It is the ultimate, perfect human sacrifice, a sacrifice in your place and in mine. He gives his life for you. He gives his life for me. He clothes us in his righteousness. And so every moment, no it doesn't matter how bad it is, if, I, if there is breath in my lungs, it is the moment that I realize I'm still a child of God because of Jesus. And the moment can be as bad as it is. If there's breath in my lungs and there's, there's blood in my veins, I'm still clothed in righteousness because of the gospel. If there's breath in my lungs and there's blood in my veins, the truth is there's still a sure and steadfast hope in Christ. The gospel transforms every moment of our life. Jesus transforms every moment of our life from a moment of mourning to a moment of praise. It does not mean that every moment's fun. It does not mean that every moment's pain-free. It does not mean that every every moment um, is, is laughter and delight. It means that in every moment, no matter how bad it is, He is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. That's, that's what it means. And that we can rest, our souls can find rest in knowing that He is there, that He is good, and that He's giving us grace in that moment. He is the God of all grace, and you will never escape His grace. But you need Jesus. You need Him more than I can begin to say. You need Him more than I can begin to preach. If every moment of your life is going to have deep meaning, if every moment of your suffering is going to have deep meaning, you need Jesus. He gives value and He gives worth to all suffering and all laughter, all praise. all all sadness and all sorrow, all anger, all hurt, all delight and all joy. He gives it meaning every moment of our lives. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this is weighty. It is big. It is vast. Let us not foolishly shrink it. There's never been a moment In anyone's life in this room or on this planet where they have been completely and totally absent of your grace there is a common grace that covers all there's a common grace that sustains life for those who do not deserve it which is every single one of us especially me. But yet you sustain me. You put breath in my lungs and you put blood in my heart. On the days when I I love you, on the days when I'm foolish, you sustain me. So every moment of life, might it be a moment of praise and to the glory of your name. For as long as I live, for as long as we live, might our stories be a story of praise. In our suffering, might our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers see a gladness that cannot be explained, a hope that cannot be fully understood until they know you. I pray that they would. I pray this in your name. Amen.